Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, he was always a good bloke to be fair. to tier three it might sound late but it's actually not because we went a little bit later due to efl i want to call it efl cup chris it's carabao carabao cup is it yeah nice big healthy glass of carabao now i've got to admit carabao have been good to me in the past by getting me an interview with antonio conte so i'm kind of favorable towards them um but they've had some bad pr so far this season however now the big teams have stepped in this is even more of a thorn in in most big team sides. It's it's not ideal. The thing is, the, the start of the Premier League season with this included. I mean, it's always been this way with the League Cup, um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of games in a short space of time. Which, if you're in good form, that's a, a huge blessing because it lets you further build the momentum and, and give a lot of tests to fringe players and things like this, which some clubs have done this evening. At the same time, if you're not in the greatest of form, um, I mean, Brighton's probably a decent example. They've had a, an okay start to the league. They've played 120 minutes down at Bournemouth tonight and then they have to go home and, and play a fairly informed Newcastle side on Sunday. So it's Hello. it's not ideal for, for Chris Hewton. No, certainly not. Um, and of course, there's some other surprises tonight. Uh, what most people would have put in the form table as another loss for Crystal Palace. Actually... Uh, they they got away with a 1-0 win in the end. Uh, obviously, it's Selhurst Park, Chris, and obviously, uh, maybe neither side will have prioritised this one, making it a bit more of a level playing field. Um, but, the, I mean, obviously, uh, great for morale around the club in the first place and great for Roy Hodgson to get an early win under his belt. And Definitely, the goal. And by, yeah, I mean, the, the goal is the most important thing, you could argue. Um it came from, from Sacco, who hasn't been as involved. But I would argue, looking at what Hodgson did at Fulham and things like that, a player like Sacco represents a, an important piece or an important cog. That's the thing with Palace. They've got him, Townsend, Zaha as well. So they've got some decent attacking pieces out wide that you would think will fit perfectly with, with Benteke. But by all accounts, Ruben Loftus-Cheek was, was the more impressive player. I think it was Tim Sherwood compared him to a, a Rolls-Royce. And I think if you even look at the Southampton game, I know they lost. Tim Sherwood doesn't know what a Rolls-Royce is. Um, 
I mean, even though they they lost that game against Southampton, I thought Loftus Cheek came out of it with a you know his head held high because he's a good driving midfielder. I don't think he's maybe the most technically gifted midfielder that come out of Chelsea, but I think his ability to break the lines and things like that is a, is an important skill, for, especially for a team that's going to play in the way that I imagine Palace will do under Hodgson. Certainly, it was a difficult start for Hodgson as well, though, wasn't it, Chris? I, I mean, they showed. Um... I don't want to say improvement because actually I think it would be very difficult to judge what improvement is from uh, De Boer to Hodgson considering we saw such a small sample size. But we saw Royisms throughout this team and we're likely to see even more Royisms because unless he's gone through a very um, unconventional late career shift, um, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. Um but I mean, you know, at the same time, are we going to see anything different? Do you think from Roy Hodgson? You mean compared to to what we're used to? Well, maybe compared to. I mean, in- England might be a bit of a unique example as to what we uh, are used to from Hodgson. We, what I know about Hodgson from maybe reading interviews with past players over the past week and that sort of thing, which I think are probably more insightful than journalists just sort of guessing at what he might do trying to replicate England, is, uh, you know, drilling teams hard and giving a front three, great podcast, a a bit more freedom. And maybe there's a a sort of a winning formula there considering the pieces that Crystal Palace have at their disposal. But, uh, you know, at the same time, maybe Roy Hodgson also lacks the implementation of that backbone that it feels like Crystal Palace need. Yeah, I think that's that's the the interesting thing. I feel like we have a very set idea of what Roy Hodgson is as a coach, and it's let's be honest, it's defensive. It's not taking risks. A lot of the things that Sam Allardyce outlined in that survival plan when he did an interview with Sky Sports, um, not taking risks in your own half and, and that sort of thing. But really, if you look at his time with England. I'm not saying that it, it entirely went against the grain, but there was the moment where he employs the diamond, I want to say, against Germany, where they win, I think, is it 3-2 with the, the Vardy sort of flick goal? That was that Classic was fairly moment, Second to his Iceland moment. I mean, that's the thing. That was fairly expansive. It was, it was fairly different. It was certainly shunting convention or, or shifting away from it. I think for him, what has always kept him in work I mean, look, he's 70 and I've seen pieces saying, you know, it's criminal that he has a job in, in football and, you know, it points to a lot of what's wrong with the, the management circle. The reason he stays in work is because of his pragmatism and ability to gauge what a team's level is. So he's not going to try and have a West Brom, a Fulham, a Palace playing like he would maybe with England where he feels like he could employ a diamond and be quite expansive. He'll find what their limits are and, and keep them well within that, which is not the most exciting if you're a supporter, but it will keep you in the league most years. And I think for Palace, that's what they're looking for right now. They're looking for survival. They're not looking for anything else because I think what dawns on every club at some point when you've become semi-stable in the league is just how reliant you are on that money that, that comes with it. I mean, it's certainly interesting to think about the different factors in there. Will Will Roy Hodgson be able to mesh with some of those guys, um, or because of the sort of I don't know, I, I don't I don't really know about Roy Hodgson's heart or true true heart in that sense. But it's certainly going to be interesting to see uh, what happens with the way he builds a relationship with that team. Because there's certainly other players out there who highly rate the way that Roy Hodgson builds relationships with players. Um, 
uh, having said that, that, that means it's a 50% win rate so far for Roy Hodgson. Uh, exciting and surprising. Maybe all in the same package, Nico, as someone like West Ham, who tonight uh, were inspired by Marko Arnautovic to beat Bolton 3 0. Um, and sort of, there is a, a, the beginnings of the embers of what we recognise of West Ham every season, where they're either incredible or awful. Yeah, and I think there's instances where maybe people have overinflated the problems that West Ham seem to have, um, given their current form and and the uh, the way that they've gone in the league and how it's seemed to consistently go down ever since uh, Slavin Bilic's uh, first season at West Ham. Um, but you know, this is this is a game where you know you feel like the the greater opposition was going was always going to be to win the match, and that certainly seem to be the case um whether they continue that form in the competition remains to be seen but it, it's a it's an area where maybe they can return to form and, and maybe have a little bit of success that uh for fans that have been expecting it ever since uh people felt like they should be pushing on from their from their great experiences a few seasons ago let's go to liverpool i mean let's go to leicester uh, but let, let's go to liverpool to talk about some of the post-mortem chris that's going to be taken out of these last three games two get two draws one loss one of those to Leicester City they lost 2-0 having heavily rotated a team and bringing in a back line which consisted of Joe Gomez and Ragnar Klavan at centre-back and two full-backs who uh, were left exposed at times by the midfield that sat just ahead of them um, it was the, the, I mean the changes will definitely mean that you can't expect the consistency which you maybe want uh, a Liverpool team to have but again, it's people going back to the same old narrative, which people seem to be writing of, they don't finish at one end and they don't keep goals out at the other. But there seem to be signs all the way in between that they should be able to do both. Yeah. Um, I mean, they created, what was it, 34, 35 attempts against Burnley at the weekend. So I think, I mean, this is where, you know, your expected goals can, can come in and... and give you an idea on the quality of those chances because I think when you do make it so binary like that it it can lead you to, to false um, realisations or false um, intuition and I, and I think it, again at, at the other end of the field it's so easy to turn around and say that Liverpool clearly need to go and sign a, uh, a centre-back you know Virgil van Dijk whoever and, and get them in and that'll fix things I question at this point if there isn't a greater issue, which is the attacking formation and the way that they play actually leaves their defence exposed and in bad positions. Because one of the it's things an interesting I noticed, idea there, Chris. Well, this is one of the things I noticed that when when we analyse Van Dijk, the Southampton line I wouldn't say is is, is like chronically deep, but it's going to play deeper than say a Liverpool line is. And I think you find that a lot of the time when clubs buy a defender from lower down in the league and they they then have to play usually with a better teammate definitely but also higher up the field that means you have more space to potentially make mistakes and I know that sounds quite a Mourinho um, take on things that you know it's about mistakes and not the confidence in your ability but I think that would be an interesting transition for Van Dijk which is suddenly he's having to play maybe closer to the halfway line than he's used to and how does he adapt to that and how does he spot the danger and things and and that's where I think Klopp has to come in. And I wrote this very notion this week for, for you, Max, that I think he has to become more pragmatic. I think he has to game manage a bit more. 
in the same way that we gave Pochettino credit for against Dortmund. He has to sit there and say, okay, what what's the best way to break this team down? What's what's their weakness? It's not just a case of we, we'll play with the way we play and we'll bowl them over anyway. Because I think that's too naive in, in today's game. I, I, do, I see elements of that coming through in Klopp's game every now and again. You see them trying to make more crosses from certain positions. You see Liverpool trying to make the one-twos on the edge of the box. You see there are elements of that coming into the game. Maybe not as much as people would like but seeing that element is definitely good and then also seeing some of the for want of a better word sort of freestyle football that Liverpool put together at times some of the passing is great and we saw that against teams like Sevilla but then at the other end I mean I guess there's also a problem that if you analyse the goals that Liverpool conceded against Sevilla in their first match back in the Champions League group stages uh, for quite some time People said that there's a, there's a real problem with the system here. And I have no doubt there is definitely, there are issues with the system, which left maybe Liverpool and Lovren in particular exposed. But the first goal Liverpool conceded, definitely a mistake from Dejan Lovren. And the second goal Liverpool conceded, definitely a sloppy moment and less about the system, more about, again, an individual mistake. And that's something that Klopp is going to be confident that he, he can coach out. Well, and not necessarily even coach out, but as you mentioned, the first the first goal that Liverpool conceded against Sevilla. I mean, you you can't when you when you're walking around you know the streets and you trip. That's not you know that's not something you consciously do. It's an accident, and so a lot of people I think made more of that mistake than was necessary. But I think the, the but surely surely they, they will have made more of that mistake because it had a massive implication on the game. Maybe if they, yeah, yeah, maybe if they, maybe if it hadn't have had that massive implication becomes more, but I think it goes, I think it, it, the reason that people talk about it um, so much is because it, it goes along with the narrative and, and the consistency of the mistakes that people feel like are coming from the likes of Dejan Lovren and some of the defenders for Liverpool. And so I, I think as, as you know, someone that likes to look at the numbers and someone that likes to analyze teams and, you know, you say, and I, I've, I've written something on Liverpool about, about their system exposing their defenders. And while I certainly still hold that to be true, I think at the same time, if we look at the teams that they tend to concede against, it's the teams that, you know, sit deep and, and, uh, and look to seed a lot of chances against them. Um, and somebody actually mentioned on Twitter, looking at the expected goals, now that it is a little bit more mainstream and a lot of people are um, taking their own interpretations of it, um, said that, you know, one of these days, Liverpool is going to, to beat Burnley 4-0, playing exactly the same way that they always do. And that's because they feel, you know, given the, the expected goals and the new metrics, that Liverpool always create chances against teams, no matter what. But it's it seems to happen consistently against these teams that they just don't go in and then they get countered upon. And I think maybe this is this is the point I'm trying to make where the the this is perhaps where the holes in some of these um, these metrics come to the fore in the sense that the, the teams that they tend to, to do extremely poorly against that they should do better against are teams like Sean Dyche, uh, Sean Dyche's Burnley, and teams like Leicester that they, they defend in weird ways in the sense that they, they seed possession, they seed, um, you know, shots from areas that teams normally are not comfortable with, and yet they apply the defensive pressure in a way that the shot, regardless of its, uh, you know, good position, is, is a poor shot. And so I think this is, you know, a possible gray area for Liverpool where, you know, obviously they have the individual mistakes from the defenders, but at the same time, their lack of ability to score or against, or I guess win against some of these teams like Burnley and like Leicester um, are because, you know, it's it's a more complex issue to some extent. I also think there's, there are 
I don't know, there are big, uh, there's big cultural problems maybe at Liverpool for a manager like Klopp. And I think, I mean, I kind of flagged this when he first came in that I worried that his style of football was very appealing, but at the same time left Liverpool open. And it's definitely that sort of come to be true. And I, I, that's less that I think I'm some sort of uh, great analyst. I think it's just more that I, I come from uh, growing up around a Benitez style of football rather than, you know, a Klopp style of football. Um, and even when Liverpool pushed for the title in the 13-14 season against City, um, I still sort of lamented the idea that it wasn't this lockdown risk-averse football. Um, and I think at times that, that has a tendency to magnify what's going on for Liverpool. Having said that, all the people who have played them have exploited it exceptionally well. And uh, Leicester um, also scored, scored, some, scored some good goals. So, um, but, but wouldn't you say that it's almost... Um we're overlooking the fact that maybe, you know, you, you spoke about how you didn't like the fact that, that Liverpool over the past few seasons, whether it was with Klopp or not, have not necessarily uh, maintained a, a sense of, of, you know, risk, risk first, you know, mitigating the risk um, kind of football and, and more risky stuff. And that I think that really speaks to the hiring of Jurgen Klopp from, from Liverpool is that, you know, they know that they maybe didn't either want or have the financial resources that some of the other clubs in England who want to win things um, do. And so they go out and they get a coach that is the quintessential, you know, image in, in world football at the time of trying to overachieve and overachieving uh, past opponents that have, more money, you know. The one of Jurgen Klopp's most famous quotes is, "You know, Bayern have a bazooka and we have a bow and arrow, and we're we're shooting the same target." And so I think we can criticize Klopp, and certainly I have, for his lack of ingenuity, and that may well be something that never wins Liverpool a title under him. But at the same time, it is to his credit that we're speaking about Liverpool in consistent terms of being within the top four, being within the Champions League and doing those things because of his overachievement, uh, overachieving style of football. And maybe without him, Liverpool continue to be the fifth, sixth, seventh place team that, that they were before. All right, mate. Um, uh, I didn't, I didn't mean that to be a dick at you, but you know what I mean? Like they are... Um, it was um, it, no. I, I think a lot of people have to accept where Liverpool now find themselves and find themselves coming from and going to, and uh, maybe the intimidation that Klopp wants to be there at times doesn't feel like it's there because actually, I think. Uh, but you you made the point as well that that some of these signings, like so the this summer window without Klopp, is, I think you said it. You know, not disappointing, but it is. It does have a different shade to it than if Jurgen Klopp isn't there, right? Completely. Um, and yeah, I, th I think that, so there's, there's uh, every cloud or there's also two sides to every um, paper narrative. And I, sometimes I think more of it is about us just having something to say on a podcast rather than having something significant. Um, however, I'm not putting down what you said. I think you wrote a great article. It's well worth a read. And I think it's on our Twitter feed a number of times. So go take a look at it there, guys, at the front three. Tottenham also got away this weekend, uh, Chris, with a 1-0 win against Barnsley. Um, this also, though, was on a quiet night at Wembley. And again, people seem to be building this idea that Wembley just isn't Tottenham's location. <laughs> um, yeah, one, one voice, I think I'm saying that correctly, came in as well, which is a, an interesting signing, really. I mean, Pochettino's Argentinian, so obviously knows the, the league like the back of his hand. Um, 
But yeah, it was it was interesting to see him come in. I think that's the thing. Spurs, as much as we gave them credit, self, me especially for for game managing the the, the Dortmund match. I do question if they're still being slightly hampered by the fact they don't have a conventional winger in the team. So they have the likes of Son and Sissoko who can play wide, but they're a little bit kick-and-rush merchants when it comes to dribbling. They're not tricksters or they're not like a Wilfred Zaha, for example. And I think that really stifles them because if you're Does that not come down to your... the fullbacks? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Is that just not yeah, enough? Yeah, I mean, it, it can to a degree. I mean, that's uh, that's where Aurier presents an interesting change potentially because, again, he'll give them that kind of Kyle Walker experience from from right wing back. Um, the difficulty I have, and I can say this having played at fullback, um, expecting someone to kick and rush it it's a lot easier to defend than if they're running at you doing tricks and step overs and potentially twisting you one way and the other um, I'd much rather play against a, a winger who is faster but less tricky if that makes sense um, and and the difficulty I think that Spurs have had is finding that player because they wanted Wolf Zahar they bid for him but Palace said no they got Sissoko in that didn't really work still isn't working um, in fact, I think Sissoko was looking a little bit heavier than, than when he was in his, his best. Um, and so after that, you, you're looking at maybe Keita who ended up at um, Monaco. And, you know, you, you're going to spend a lot of money for a winger there, which is is a big ask on a team that already has a lot of good players in it. I mean, you know, Son is, is not always starting, but is still a key influencer. Deli Ali has to fit in there. Eriksen has to fit in there. So it's, it's a team, I think, that needs that kind of variety that that a top four side usually has, but is wrestling with the fact that it doesn't have the financial clout to necessarily be able to accommodate that kind of player. If it can, it's trying to rely on its youth academy and the likes of, say, Josh Onema. Um, But even then, I I don't think those players are at that level, the the Harry Winkses and Josh Onemas. And Pochettino, in fact, again, I did something on this this week about how it's difficult for him to develop those players because he doesn't want to loan them out because in his eyes, he doesn't want lesser coaches working with them, which, you know, it's, it's I said in the piece, you know, it's, it's quite admirable. I mean, you could argue it's a little bit pretentious at the same time, but it doesn't help their, those players' development when they're just sitting watching every week. They need to be playing. They need to be experiencing things. And that's the, the, the quandary, I think, that Pochettino has locked himself in at the this precise moment is they don't have the money to go out and waste another 30, 35 million. They've got to be sure. And even then, what is 30, 35 million going to buy you in the current market? Is it going to get you a game changer? My gut instinct says no, unless you're really doing some due diligence and taking a little bit of a punt on a player from, from a lesser league. Elsewhere in the Premier League, uh, Nico, a fantastic win uh, for Man City again. Um, can you can you also after we've obviously pointed out so many great positives for Man City is it also worth flagging about the great start that Man City had last season and comparing the two yeah certainly and I think um, but but I think the difference really between 
those starts. And really, I say those because uh, this is actually technically the worst start to a season that Manchester City have since, I think, the 13-14 season. Um, because City have been great in the opening five to ten games because of the experience that they tended to have in, in really uh, well, you know, well-known players in terms of they, they knew the league really well and they, they understood each other really well and they had played together for a long time. But I think the difference here is that the, the uh, excellence that City have been putting out on the pitch uh, early in the season hasn't been down to uh, an experience because the lineup has been relatively varied and the system has t- changed and they've done different things tactically and it hasn't been down to the the individual uh you know traits of certain players it's it's really been down to uh the things that they the things that the coach has done and some of the things that they're doing um tactically so i think you know if, if there's a comparison to be made, it's it's a different type of success that I think they're having in the early season as opposed to the season before where that wasn't sustainable across a long period of time as we saw um, in previous seasons, um, whereas now it's a, it's a little bit different. So what in particular are you enjoying about this city side? I think the versatility is probably the best thing because um, maybe as Chris mentioned, I think, you know, like Tot- like he said, you know, Tottenham maybe uh, struggle from a lack of uh, of having a wide player, but that is often not really how um, the best teams tend to attack. You know, the, the the fullbacks hold the width because the most efficient and deadly way to attack a team is centrally, and that's really what I liked about City throughout the season and specifically against, specifically against Watford. You know, having Kyle Walker and Benjamin Mendy hold that width and then using someone like Raheem Sterling in a central position, you know, although he 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 scored a penalty and uh, he was really influential throughout the game. The Watford players found it really difficult to deal with him in central areas because he is so influential, but also him roaming and, and doing different things on the ball took the pressure uh, and maybe some of the attention away from the likes of David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne. And when you can have those players a little less focused on, that's a that's a recipe for success. Um, so I would say the, the versatility, because I think you have a performance like that where it, so much of it is through the fullbacks and really so much of City's success right now is because of the athleticism and versatility that those players offer. At the same time, there's a different game plan that can be uh, implemented when you have someone like Lira Sané and Raheem Sterling holding the width, and then you can do things differently in the in the middle. I was certainly going to say there's an interesting side to this. It, it, having been part of a Man City uh, fan base for a while now, do you think there is a different confidence that comes with a Pep Guardiola building than any of the previous iterations of this Man City uber wealth? Certainly, from myself, there is because I think. Unlike other managers, specifically Manuel Pellegrini, I think there's a genuine um, sense of intention when we do certain things on the ball and we do certain things on the pitch is that you can see that there's, and that's maybe the thing that I most enjoy about analyzing tactics is that there is, a, specifically with Guardiola, um, is that there's specific causes and, and purposes to what the players are doing in every sense. You know, there's a purpose to the positioning. There's a purpose to uh, to a lot of the movement and passes and everything really works in, in a certain way. And, and when it doesn't come off, it, it can be frustrating. Um, but at least you know that there's a genuine blueprint, whereas maybe under other coaches, and this is something that some people praise and maybe someone like myself doesn't like, it's a little bit more free-flowing and there, there feels like there's less intention. So I think in that sense, there's a different sense of confidence um, with this with this Manchester City team. But yeah, I would say um, it's, it's really enjoyable to watch and, and definitely different under Guardiola. 
Chris, elsewhere, there was uh, something which we originally wanted to start talking about on the the, Pogba, the first time we started to try and record it, but then that didn't happen, um, was uh, Chelsea versus Arsenal. Ended nil-nil at the end at Stamford Bridge, and Arsenal find themselves, I think, being the first team that stopped Chelsea scoring a goal at home in something like 29 games. And that's that's part of the what people seem to be coming away from with this match is uh, the the positives of having um, a a more sure defence and a much more solid base of midfield, which seemed able to break down wave after wave of Chelsea, but also begin attacks of wave after wave against Chelsea and almost go toe to toe. Yeah. Uh, I, I would agree with that. I think at the same time, it wasn't a great game. Um, no, it definitely wasn't the most entertaining. Things broke down very quickly. Yeah, that was the thing. It felt like they cancelled each other out. Um, I think Ferguson, uh, not Ferguson, excuse me, Wenger made a lot of smart tactical decisions. I think it would have been easy to to go in full-blooded and, and include Sanchez and, and try and play in the way that he likes to, which is that sort of 4-2-3-1. But instead, he, he went for something that was, I think, a little bit more risky because he doesn't have necessarily the centre-backs to, to play a back three. But it paid off for them. And I think, you know, they had some good chances to win it. Like Azet, Mustafi, you're looking at a slightly different result there if, if those go the way of Arsenal. I think... At the same time as, as I say that, there's definitely part of me that feels like it's like that's a highlight for Arsenal. Does that make sense? Kind of their mm-hmm. their expectations have been, I think, weathered so much that it's not a case of okay, well, it's a decent point, but we have to build on it. It's very much kind of this was a great game. We played really well. You look at a lot of Arsenal fans talking about giving Ramsey a, a nine and a ten and all this kind of thing, and yeah, they mm-hmm. were good, but I, but I also think that part of the reason they they got that result is because Conte underestimated them. And if there, there's always more than one moving part in these kind of situations. And I think that certainly Arsenal improved and they played better than they have in recent weeks. They, like I said, they also caught Chelsea off guard because I think Conte assumed that he could get away with playing Fabregas in the middle like that and not needing Bakayoko and, and the combination of Bakayoko and Conte to, to overpower that midfield and give don't, them Don't control. you think that a little bit of a cop-out, Chris, with, with Conte, because I feel like the past few times that, that Arsenal have played Chelsea, it's it's been consistent successes for the most part, bar one or two results. And every time, you know, they, they tend to play each other, whether it's, you know, in the Community Shield or in the FA Cup final, it's like Conte gets away with it because he underestimated a, a player or he the, the players, you know, weren't ready for it because it was the end of the season or the beginning of the season. I mean, at some point... I think we have to give credit to Wenger, and I, I, I did certainly in the preview because I thought Arsenal were going to win. We're going to win, in the sense that you know I think this is his doing. He he understands what to do against Conte, and it's a shortcoming of Conte to not have adjusted by this point. Supposedly being the better manager. Yeah, that's that's in essence what I'm saying is that uh, that Arsenal I think improved. They definitely played better, but I think when I say underestimated them, I mean that as a criticism um, because it's against their opponent. They they didn't. Factor in what, or Conte specifically didn't factor in what he had learned from the FA Cup final, what he had learned from previous meetings. And that is a surprise given how often we see him be pragmatic and we see him adjust like he did after the loss to Burnley and things like that. So, yeah, I think 
it's it's not when I say that he underestimated him, I don't mean oh, you know, it was a, a small mistake. It was a, it was a big misstep from him, undeniably, and I think that's one of the reasons that even though it's still very early in the season, we're looking at one of the Manchester sides to to drop the ball and take the title or give the title to the other one rather than saying, actually, Chelsea look very good for retaining this. And, and part of that reason is things like that. The fact that he thought he could get away with that, that's a bad decision to make, undeniably. I also think it's that he, he, he maybe was trying to get away with that because he's not quite sure on the shape of that front triangle yet and is slightly waiting for the reintroduction of Hazard on a more consistent fit basis um, I mean that, that's definitely part of it um, and someone with a little bit a different kind of movement to the movement that they already have um, but I, I mean we see your points about one of the Manchester teams dropping pace and Nico I mean one team the, at times I mean I, I watched the full game with Satman Dave on Sunday between Manchester United um, and an absolutely decimated Everton um, but they were decimated late. Um, and, you know, no matter how big the penis of any of the players in that team, there is, there is, there's still a sort of a Mourinho-esque uh, fantasism which goes along with it. And it, it, there's something quite alluring about it. Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, people taking credit away from some of the Manchester United wins and maybe some of the Manchester United goals and saying that, you know, that they're not as valid, even though they clearly are. Um because because they leave it late is 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 I think a, a discredit to his team who have done exceptionally well and this Manchester United team have come so far from where they were last season in terms of the evolution of how they play their football and I think regardless of when they score it's really speaks to their credit as to you know the, the evolution of maybe Mourinho a little bit in the same way that Guardiola has evolved a little bit to the Premier League um, that the team is doing really well and I I, I continue to I I expect the the same results to be coming regardless of when the, the goals are scored, really. Nice. Okay. Um, anyone got any opinions on uh, the chant, which for weeks was going around? It, 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 it's, just, it's just banter, Nico. It's just banter. Um, having, yeah, I don't, having, I don't a, really... having, a big, having a big penis is, is, of course, something that anyone should be proud of. Yeah, and I, mean, I think it's a... Uh, it's something that you really don't want to see because it is regardless of the, 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 the I think the incorrect take that people are taking. Here he, is, he, he might, he might have a big penis because I mean, you know, uh, powerful men have big penises. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that's, the, only, that's the reason, that's the reason people are saying, yeah, exactly. In that sense, he's very masculine. And if he had a small penis, he wouldn't score as many goals. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, the thing that you want to see maybe eradicated from football is this small uh, overarching <laughs> is this overarching sense of hyper masculinity within the game that is you know regardless of whether you think the racial stereotype or the cultural st- cultural stereotype is a positive one you know Lukaku yeah. having a larger small penis it's it's one that we you know is not appropriate for people to be chanting because it, it, there's so much more to Lukaku than having a bigger small penis. And it's really not about that. And it's, it's a chant that I don't think anybody should be proud to, to be chanting. Is it, I mean, Chris, is that, is that um, this is going to be what's written in, in a lot of, uh, and, and definitely what's going to be said on a lot of uh, talk sports stations. And uh, it, is that is that this is also going to be written in every sort of uh, right wing and left wing newspaper? Is that you know, 
chanting is an affectionate thing. Chanting's about, you know, b- being close with a guy. And, it, you know, it's about feeling like you know that guy. Um, and th- there's an un- the sort of uncomfortable air to the entire thing because we all know what the chant was about Lukaku. But at the same time, you know, we know we know what, what, what culture can be like sometimes and the way that it's constructed can sometimes mean that it is inconsiderate and it is, and those cultural stereotypes aren't, do you, do you know what I'm getting at here? Just because it's portrayed as a positive trait does not mean that it's not racist or insensitive. Yeah. And that's part of the problem, isn't it though, is, is, is that they, you know, it's, uh, it's is, unfortunately, is that, it, it, it reinforces the stereotype of how we characterize black people and their sexuality. That's the problem. And, that, and that's part of the problem is that actually uh, how, how many of the people singing that will be aware of that? No, they won't. But, but that's because it's. Uh, so, so it doesn't have an air at all of sort of. And I, 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 you know, I guess being part of this sort of the liberal media sort of being like, well, look at these ill-educated guys singing. And upsetting yeah, the, these, you know, does that sort of come? That comes across sometimes for me, which which is also another side which then makes me feel uncomfortable. I, I don't think racism is defined solely by negative traits. That's that's what you have to to understand here. Is that I mean, in in the the nineteen eighties, um, there was a song about I believe it was a striker called Franz Carr who played for Newcastle, and it it went something along the lines of Blackies Bruni plays for the tune, something like that. Yeah. Now that wasn't seen as racist, and and Franz Carr didn't see it as racist. He, he saw it as quite a funny thing to to sing about. the The problem you have, though, is that again you're you're generalizing someone based on the way that they look, and in the case of Lukaku, you're generalizing that because he is um, a a black man, he clearly is well endowed because that's the stereotype that's that's been sort of uh, proliferated through through media, through culture, all that kind of stuff, and and that's what I think people need to grasp is that at the same time, I don't I don't think people objecting to it are looking to paint people as being ignorant or stupid or anything like that. I think what they're trying to say is, look, you need to show a little bit more understanding that not everything that you say about a different race, ethnicity, gender, whatever that is positive in your eyes is acceptable, if that makes sense. And I think that's where we need to, to just show a little bit of evolution, if you will, a little bit of maturity and say, well, hang on, just because this was acceptable when I was a kid, when my dad was growing up, whatever, that doesn't mean it's acceptable now. Our culture should always be evolving. It should always be growing and moving forward. And that might sound like a grandiose take for what is essentially a football chant, but I think in the long run, it's important we do that because we have to remember that whether we think it or not, we're raising the next generation. And and that's that's the difficulty is that specifically in football stadiums, there is often a sort of acceptance of a lot of things that you wouldn't get away with shouting on the street because it's like, well, it's just a football ground. You know, it's just that's the done thing whether it's actual racist abuse or whether it's um, homophobic abuse, all that kind of stuff. You just have to go to a ground in England and you'll hear that kind of stuff. Um, I don't think we can any longer sit and just say, well, that's par for the course. There has to be a point where we stand up and say, okay, 
things need to change. We need to evolve. We need to push forward yeah. with this kind of stuff. Oh, I love it when you answer my questions well. Um, there are uh, apparently also uh, Manchester United uh, related people urging the club to stop fans from singing what's now being referred to as, and weirdly, the Lukaku song. Um, you would you think that people could get creative with his name a little bit more? Lukaku is surely a a, a name to get creative with. Um, anyway, uh, let us know your favourite football songs, which you've got a tinge of um, sort of uh, uh, awful, awful undertones. There are plenty of them out there. Uh, I asked for that ironically. Don't at me. Um, anyway, there are uh, there were other games this weekend as well. Um, and Chris, one of them was a Newcastle game. Um, Newcastle got away with a win uh, against Mark Hughes's Stoke. First of all, Rafa Benitez, the ultimate merchant of, um, of banter, shook Mark Hughes's hand for what felt like four hours. Hmm. Um, yeah, it was, you know, obviously, friend of the show, Elliot Hackney, is a, is a Stoke fan. Um, and he and I he were DMing before the game. He loves Andrew. Um, and I'll be honest I had no idea which way the game was going to go and even after the game I was sort of like I couldn't really tell if it I I couldn't decide whether it was a deserved win because I mean Hosolu in particular had two or three really good chances that he that he fluffed Um, and it was it was a very close game Um, I think that's fair to say there was a penalty shout in there that I'll be honest, I still don't know if it's a penalty or not. I've seen enough people say both ways. Um, but what I think you can take from it is it's probably the most impressive of the three wins that Newcastle have put together. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Together, because for me, Stoke are the best of those three sides. Mm. Um, the way they game manage the situation, I keep using that phrase, I know, but I, I thought they didn't try and outplay Stoke. They were happy to, to almost take those gig and pressing elements of winning it high and then starting counterattacks further up the field, which they did perfectly for the first goal. Um, I think that defence, the fact it's allowed to sit a little bit deeper, stay a bit more compact, that really helps the players involved there because they're all very good defenders at heart, but I don't know how good they are at actually playing the ball out. And then you have Mikel Moreno, who is, for me, growing in confidence with each game, is starting to understand the league a bit better. 
Um, and and yeah, I think there's a lot of positives to take. They've got nine points now. They took them until November 8th, I think, with Steve McLaren last time they were in the league to get that many. Um, so they're on course for for um, survival, which is, is the, the goal this season. Um, but for Stoke, I think it was just... I don't know. I think they struggle from the fact they're not playing with a recognised forward. Um, they have that front three, great podcast, of, mm. of Hesse, Chupomoting and Shakiri, but there's no one kind of sitting there and serving as the link between the rest. And Shakiri, to me, while he's a wonderful footballer... He's not a 10, is he? Well, the few times I've watched him, he seems very willing to go into his own world where he just shoots a lot. And and sometimes that works. I mean, the goal they score comes from him shooting on the edge of the box. But there's a few times where he goes high and wide and he's not that involved and, you know, he can drift in and out of games. And I think you're without wishing to sound disrespectful to Stoke, you're seeing why the likes of Inter and Bayern were willing to let him go is because he's a little bit mercurial in both the best and worst ways. And I think that's where I feel a little bit for Stoke is that they're just missing that link man up front because I don't think it's going to be Berahino either. But you look at that back line and the midfield and they've got enough experience and quality. Admittedly, they need two wing backs like yesterday because I don't think Peters is one and Mamed Burham Doof is definitely not one as hard as he works. But there's definitely the foundation of a good side there. And I said before, I could see them being a surprise package just because if it does click for them and, and the right things go their way, then they have more than enough quality to get there. I think they're just missing one or two pieces that maybe they could pick up in January. Mm, certainly is interesting. It's certainly interesting to see Benitez football um, back with a vengeance as well. Um, you also just got to love Christian. Uh, is it not Christian? Is it Atsu? Um, let's also, let's just finish. Uh, Nico, I do want your take on Conte a little bit. Uh, you, I got your take on him earlier. I didn't get a chance to come back to you. Um, with him going to be obviously changing things for the EFL Cup, sorry, Carabao Cup, is this going to be the next phase of what we see with Conte? He needs to bring you through at Chelsea. It looks like he can bring you through at Chelsea. He can do this in the uh, in the Carabao Cup. With him sort of, you know, acknowledging that they sort of stayed level and keeping the ship steady over the summer, you know, by Sane Morata being able to subtly transition Costa out of the side, etc., etc., is this the next uh, part of his his management that he can now begin to bring some kids through in the same way that Juventus will have liked to bring it, brought Italians through, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera? I think there's certainly the the opportunity for him to do so, but I don't think he will, given his uh, past record um, at Juventus and the clubs that he was at previously. I think there's a call for him to sort of evolve tactically, and maybe some of the youth that is uh, both out on loan and and even still at the club, or or some talent that is is there right now that he has purchased is offers to him the ability to evolve tactically and push on and have similar to, uh, success to the one uh, to the season that he had last year with Chelsea, but. I, I just I don't see that he has the ability to right now because, you know, it's it's all fine for me to say that it's time for him to evolve, but it's very difficult implementing that. But I, I, like you, like I said before, I think there is certainly the, the opportunity for him to do so. But as to whether he will, I don't think it will be sort of in a in a more permanent sense. There's a possibility of him using this opportunity to to bring some youth through and to try some different things um, tactically. But in terms of changing the side uh, in a more permanent sense for the premier competitions i don't think that will necessarily be the the goal of what he's trying to do here 
Chris, let's go to Paris or Paris Dice, as a lot of people seem to be uh, calling it right now, where there seems to be trouble in Paris Dice. And uh, Neymar and Cavani are not getting on particularly well for some weird reason. Neymar has allegedly unfollowed him on Instagram, which shows that they may not be friends, but also how petty um, one grown man who's trying to step out of the shadow of uh, another grown man is. Yeah, I feel like you'll keep me straight if my comparisons are off on this, but I feel as if it's a very important and early test for Unai Emery because essentially what he has slowly, I would say, manifesting here is almost a LeBron in Cleveland type situation. Not because of the attachment, but because of he clearly wants to be dictated to in every facet. And I could see the day where he's coaching on the sideline almost, even though he's obviously still playing. Yeah. And and that's my concern is that, yes, they've spent an obscene amount of money to get him in there. And I think to a degree, this is giving at least some credence to what Bartomeu, um I'm sure Nico will tell me if I'm pronouncing that right as well, um, said about kind of him and why they maybe let him go and, and those insinuations. Bartomeu said, said a lot of... Uh... Interesting yeah, things and it, about yeah. It, it, it's that idea, and it's it's timely because I just interviewed Mike Petke today about Thierry Henry, and and it's almost a similar kind of situation. In so much as, do you pander to the star? Do you do you give them that that um, adulation and acceptance and and power that they want, or do you set a very strong and principled line and make it so they don't feel like they're special? Um, which one's the star? I mean, I understand that this, the status here, but Cavani is sure, surely also a star. He is, but he's not on Neymar's level. That's the problem. It didn't well, well, well why does it? Why does it have to be either or? And this is a consistency that I find with a lot of the maybe the, a lot of the analysis with um, talent in England as well is that you know people. Um, maybe when Carlos Tevez was around at Manchester City, felt like you know it was justified that a player didn't do certain things in training or it was justified because of the mercurial talent of a certain individual in a team um, that they could get away with doing certain things or not doing certain things that the team was allowed to do. And I I don't feel like, I feel like especially um, at a certain age and at a certain level of profession, uh, there has to be a a sense of, I guess, transparency and saying, listen, you're going to have to, I, I, I don't know how, maybe how to word that in the best way, but I don't see why it has to be either or in the, in the sense that, you know, so you're, you you're not special who you are. Well, well, if you were Unai Emery, go ahead. Because that, unfortunately, that's the problem is that it comes down to black or white. Either you pander to them and say, okay, you know, we'll take him off penalties, we'll do whatever you want. Or you say, no, this is what's going to happen. The, the, unfortunately, there is no middle ground in that situation because he either takes the penalty or he doesn't take the penalty. Or you just give the, the penalty to someone else. Yeah, well, and, and maybe and, maybe this speaks to the evolution of the the manager that we that is required of Unai Emery because at Sevilla he obviously didn't have near uh, the 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 type of ego or the the level of ego that he will be experiencing at, at PSG. Um, and I guess it's, you know, I, I don't know what I would necessarily do in that situation because I have no experience in, in the management realm. Um, certainly with, with the caliber of player that, that both Neymar and Cavani are. Um, but I just, I feel like there is possibly a middle ground with, with that kind of situation because it just, 
I don't know if you designate the, 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 the penalty taker yourself or, or if it's something that because apparently previous to this to the incident, he had told them to work it out because there had been an incident previous to, to, to the one that um, sparked the, the, the issue. It, the, I mean, I mean there's, there's, also, the, there's the problem. I th- sorry to interject, Lawrence, yeah. but I think there's the problem in essence is that when you look for that middle ground and you say, OK, look, you two, you're grown adults, sort it out. This is what happens. You have an instance where Cavani takes the ball, misses the penalty, and then Neymar is even more annoyed because he feels like he should have had the penalty. But sure, and it surely, a between them. surely you can also then say, though, Cavani would maybe have taken a better penalty if he'd have been allowed by a supportive teammate to just focus on the penalty and not maybe put doubt in his mind. Surely the, the person who puts doubt in his mind should be an enemy and not um, someone who's supposed yeah. to be an ally. That's yeah, fair. it's like and it's kind of like um, it because of that, and and I think that's at the same time. I think yeah, Emery could sit them down and say, "Look, we're not going to win anything if you two keep being individuals like this. You both benefit each other. You both have assets that will complement each other. So get on, get on with it and play together." But at the same time, the in my mind, at least, and I'd be curious to hear listeners' opinions on this as well. The the consequence for that has to be: look, if you can't play together, then we'll not play either of you. Yeah. But can you do that with two players that cost close to three hundred million? I mean, the benefit he has is Mbappe is there too, who cost a similar amount and brings a similar theoretical level of quality. And they don't, they don't have to like team. each other in order to to play together in the same team because, as we've seen in the past, maybe with uh, Suarez and Sturridge, there you know there are plenty of instances, both heard and unheard, of players that have not gotten along off the pitch, but you know are required to be professionals in and of themselves and and. Do want do something that's better for the team, especially with the caliber of talent that those two players possess. I guess the issue yeah, is also think- maybe there's a um, there are elements in there where uh, b- both them culturally maybe come from backgrounds where it, where the the personality is slightly more intertwined with the style that they have. I mean, that's the thing. It was theorized that one of the reasons Neymar wanted to leave Barcelona was because he was tired of being the support actor to Messi wanted to build his own star. So I'm not surprised that this has occurred. And at the same time, I think, yeah, there are examples of players that didn't get on. I always think of Andy Cole and Teddy Sheringham, who, from what I remember, Andy Cole didn't like Sheringham at all because of the way he greeted him or something when he was subbed on for England. And then you look at, say, Cole and York, who got on famously, and you look at the difference. And, and no matter what PSG do, if it goes sour... I would be inclined to sit there and think, imagine if those two actually got on, how much better it would be. Well, yeah, if they it, actually it, tried it, to work together. Is it a, maybe also, and you know, I don't, we don't know all the facts, but this is the second consistent situation that Cavani has had with uh, with players at PSG, considering his relationship with Ibrahimovic was really bad. Also, they didn't they didn't like each other, and I'm sure there were there were reasons to that as well. But maybe. I, Perhaps I we're pointing think, the finger at Neymar when, it, when for, perhaps well, I mean, is the issue. Well, I think if, if both of them are involved in it, then you can definitely point the finger at both. You probably also point the finger at Danny Alves, who hit, uh, hid the ball or sort of uh, shielded the ball away from Cavani. You'd also say it's twice where Cavani has been told he is second to uh, Neymar or Zlatan or whoever it is that you, know, you want to put ahead of him. And actually, I, I think in both those instances, he threatened the status of both those players. Yeah, I mean, the problem that Cavani has, whenever he was given the the spot when Zlatan was injured at PSG, he didn't really take the chance, for my mind. And then you look at the weekend, he takes a penalty and he misses it. So there's definitely a problem, and I would say to a degree, 
an opinion or narrative, whichever word you want to apply, that Cavani is not the man for the big occasion, that when he's really needed to do something, mm. it, it doesn't come for him. I see, I see, Neymar, I see, I see but, but a point, I would, I would Neymar, also miss, Neymar also fluffed the free kick, which Cavani wanted. Yeah, that's the problem. Is I don't think it's as deeply ingrained with Neymar at this point, though. He's still seen as a game-changing player that's world-class, whereas I think Cavani's seen as a good striker, but not a world-class one. Nico. But that's, because I he'll miss chances and then score more difficult ones. Like Celtic was a good example. He scores a really difficult header, but he missed uh, a much easier chance for, I want to say, Mbappe's goal in the first half. Like He has a, he has a very polarising opinion I think Cavani whenever you speak to people about him he really does conjure a variety of opinions and so when you want to be the star and you want to say look you know this is my team or I'm, I'm the, the diamond in the middle you kind of have to deliver every time it's a big ass that's why I think no one questions choosing Messi over Neymar because Messi always delivers pretty much There's, it's very hard to find times at club level when he hasn't been what he was said, said he would be that's a very good point Nico. Yeah, I would just, my only reply to that would be, I think the divisive opinion of Cavani that people often share is because, you know, I don't think people watch Cavani enough because statistically throughout his career, he's actually proven that he is a fantastic striker. I mean, given the numbers, you know, him, Zlatan Ibrahimovic and uh, a few other players are really only the one, the only ones in, in Europe that come close to rec- replicating anywhere close to the type of goal scoring numbers that Messi and Ronaldo have. And I think for years we've had this supposedly divisive opinion of Cavani and occasionally on, on the biggest stage, you know, there was the, there's the Arsenal game that comes to mind where PSG played Arsenal last year um, that you know he didn't finish a few chances but I think it's one of those situations that it, he puts himself in positions where it looks like he's actually missed badly when he hasn't and he and he maybe it, it looks like he has failed to to finish a, a decent chance when the chance was actually quite difficult and the only reason that he got in that position was because of you know the attributes that he that are available to him you know his incredible athleticism and the way that he moves off the ball so statistically to me Cavani has proven that he he is a fantastic striker and he deserves to I guess not be pushed out of the spotlight so consistently so if there are two sides to every story um now, or maybe more than one narrative to be written. Now, uh, let's go to Madrid. Not literally, though. That would also be lovely. Opening night of Atletico Madrid's brand new stadium, Chris. And it's a glorious, it's a glorious, glorious structure. It really is quite a stadium. Uh, I must confess, I haven't seen any pictures of it. Have you um, not? They have been everywhere, Nico. Have you seen those very same pictures on social? I have seen some of those. I, I think also the... Um uh, if I'm correct, Fireworks? their highway system, their highway system runs through the like under the stadium, which is kind of so. cool. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's it seems like a a stadium fitting of a team that has consistently achieved in Europe, and hopefully they'll see they'll actually see some European uh, conquest there. Something quite nice oh, about pretty. being able to, to to keep those kids uh, or the the guys, some of the guys around for the launch of this, and in particular players like Griezmann does get Griezmann does seem to give it a. Um, a slightly more hopeful launch. Nico? Yeah, uh, Atletico have really struggled at the beginning of the season, but I think 
with Simeone signing a new deal up until I think 2025, um, that sort of reinstates maybe the the uh, uncertainty around the club that people felt because obviously they've enjoyed the majority of the success both in the league and, and in Europe um, under Simeone and the enigmatic, enigmatic style of football that he's brought to Atletico. And I think with this new stadium, it's one of those things where it's a similar thing that Tottenham are trying to do where they're, you know, although Atletico have had great pedigree in Europe and in and, and, and the past, uh, building a stadium like this and, and a stadium of that size really tends to cement uh, a place, although it doesn't guarantee anything and it obviously doesn't guarantee performance. You usually don't see teams uh, of the caliber of that stadium struggling um, all that much. So it's, I, I think it's a it's a symbol of the consistency that they want to have both under the coach uh, and as a club. Uh, elsewhere, Chris, uh, Cologne's, Cologne's weird week continue in the Bundesliga. Um, they actually tweeted, at God, so I think something along the phrase of why, what have we done or why us uh, after yeah. being absolutely thrashed in Bundesliga this week? Yeah, it was pretty comprehensive by Dortmund, to be fair. Um, I, you look at the Arsenal game and I think it was a little bit of a false, uh, false flag in so much as it was a huge game for the club uh, from their perspective because I think it had been like 20 years or something since they'd last played in Europe. And so they really did get themselves up for that. Um, and even then they lost 3-1. So, you know, there's not much to take from it. I think it's just a very tough time for, for them at the minute because, you know, Cordoba's obviously leading the line and he's not the most prolific striker in the world despite what that goal against uh, Ospina would suggest. And so they have they have my sympathies, let's put it that way. Elsewhere, uh, Real Sociedad got beaten 3-1 by Real Madrid. Real Madrid's black and green kit, it really is something to behold. But if you're looking for a kit to buy, buy the training kit. There's, in other words, Fly Emirates on the front. Um, and until Fly Emirates, until I, I do Fly Emirates, I will try and find a training kit without those words on the front. Um, it's certainly interesting. Uh, it's And Gareth Bale getting a goal in that one. Um, elsewhere... Dembele is set to miss out for Barcelona for, I think, three to four months, uh, Nico. He was bedding in quite nicely. Um, oh, and when I say quite nicely, I mean just differently to Neymar um, and showing the sort of difference in what he can bring to a team, maybe also how he's maybe more needed out on that sort of a position. But now he's out for four months and the frustration uh, there is that 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 may leave them looking a little... Uh, starlight, if not actually light up top. Yeah, I think the the consensus was he he wasn't fitting in that well, and maybe the the period that he would have enjoyed not being injured would have uh, settled him better into the team. Considering he doesn't really but, maybe play the the Barcelona way and then the I way think, that Barcelona I, liked to play. I, I think that was part of the problem, wasn't it? That actually his performances weren't terrible, but the way that. He, uh, the way that he was fitting in wasn't uh, quite the, what they wanted. Do you know what I mean? No, yeah, de- definitely. And I think there's a uh, that's almost to some extent. I'm not going to say that you know because the performances weren't bad, but I think there's a reason that they targeted him specifically and they wanted him as a player um, is because some of those th- those things were by design. And I think with Valverde's system, a lot of that is you know, focusing on, on a defensive aspect and the defensive pressing and some of the things that made Barcelona great in the first place and then accentuating the best qualities of the likes of Messi and, and Dembele and letting them do certain things in offense that allow them to be a little bit more free. Um, obviously, I, I think there's t- 
tweaks to the system and things that he wanted to work on over the course of a year that would eventually hopefully hit the stride at the right time, maybe in, in Europe and in other competitions that, um, you know, would have fit best. And this injury doesn't necessarily fit that timetable. Um, so it's a difficulty for him. But so far, so good under Valverde. So uh, I like what I've seen. Chris, elsewhere in the football boxing world, Rio Ferdinand is um, he's, he's beginning to train to, 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 to become a, a professional boxer. Easy for you, sir. Yep, he's, uh, it's, a, it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous. I think it's important to stress that he's not going through the traditional channel, so he's not getting a boxing license, and it's being, um, I think, always treated by Betfair. Yeah. Um, I don't even know why you should give them publicity, really, because it's, it's, look, I have very conflicted feelings on this, because in an interview, uh, Ferdinand said that he feels it could help him get through aggression and the loss of his wife, um, to cancer and things like that and and for that element yes I think sport can be a very good cathartic uh, facilitator for that That's kind it. of stuff with that said it does feel like a stunt um, because I saw how not nervous but how I'm trying to think the word almost upturned noses sprouted up the second money was mentioned how much he's going to be paid because he is going to be paid by Betfair to do this and there clearly is some financial gain because I assume he's going to fight a proper boxer um, in the same way that that chap from Jody Shaw fights proper fighters who are essentially just taking in their first pro fight when they step in the cage with him and for that reason I think it's just I don't know it, it it's a bit like the Big Lebowski isn't it it's when he says you know you're not wrong you're just an arsehole it, I don't feel that strongly about it, but I also don't think it's this purist Bo Jackson type pursuit that, that maybe he's trying to paint it out to be. I think he's doing something because it'll be fun and it's a chance for him to make a decent wad of, of money and maybe work through some issues that he has or some um, you know depression that he has with, with his situation. But yeah, I don't think it's some pursuit of sporting excellence like maybe he wants to make out. Elsewhere, it's well worth taking a look at the, uh, I think it's the, I think, yeah, they, they still call it the Golden Boy Award in 2017. Uh, still a bit of a weird name, maybe it's a poor translation, uh, but there are quite a few players from the English uh, league in there. Joe Gomez, uh, Dom Solanke, uh, obviously other players of note, uh, Pulisic, uh, Reese Oxford is there as well. Um, Usman Dembele, obviously. Uh, and there's uh, Aaron, Aaron Martin, Espanol, uh, and uh, I think one Leipzig mention in there, uh, Marcus, Ratchet, Marcus Rashford, um, and Kyle Walker-Peters. Some people would say it's not the strongest list we've seen in a while, but, but there are certainly some promising names in there. Uh, Chris, if you could pick one of those guys out, who would you go for? I'm, I'm just almost inclined to go down the Rashford route. Yeah, I mean, he's had the greatest impact. Um, Kasper Dolberg may also have had a similar impact. I mean, he's been very consistent. He has. Um, and he, play, he plays with a, a maturity quite similar to, to Ericsson. Um, <laughs> look at me, Phil Neville in my way through the... Um, but but he does have that sort of maturity to him that I find quite impressive. Um, for me, the one that I'm watching with most intrigue at the minute personally, not to say that he's the best, is Dom Solanke. Um, yeah, he's, 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 yeah he's, he's, shown, he's shown some flashes of stuff at Liverpool and obviously to leave Chelsea that's a big risk 
Um, I spoke to Mikhail Youngsma, who watched him a lot for Vitesse and, and, and wasn't really blown away by, I think, anything that he did. And yet he hasn't looked out of place, I think, playing for, for Liverpool. So I'm eager to see whether his potential is fulfilled or, or you know, squandered, respectively. He, well, he's had, a, you know, he's had a couple of games where he almost scored, but hasn't quite. He get the feeling he needs to get off the mark. Uh, soon uh, against Liverpool. Obviously, Kylian Mbappe is also in there, uh, and the other potential big money move of the summer that didn't come off, of course, uh, was Gianluigi Donnarumma, who is still at Milan. Um, and then, obviously, Nico Gabriel Jesus. You might feel a little biased about him. Um, do, you, do you think he deserves a Golden Boy Award yet? I don't know about award. I think he's maybe one of the more late you know, cases for for the award there. But there's there's some excellent names. I think um, the obvious name that comes to a lot of people's mind is Kylian Mbappe. Uh, a lot of people feeling that he's going to win it. But I think the, the name that maybe I'm most impressed with um, is Amadou Duara, Di, Diawara, if yeah. I'm saying that correctly. Um, a Napoli mid- central midfielder that I actually didn't know was that young. And, I mean, he stepped in for Napoli a number of times last season and looked, um, you know, not, not a not a bit out of place. So I, I think he has a really promising future. Let's also acknowledge someone who had a good uh, performance over the weekend. Uh, and it was Lamina at, at Southampton. Flagged on match of the day and analysed to within an nth degree of its life. But a, a fantastic initial ball-carrying, ball-winning performance from Lamina. Um, and as a Liverpool fan who's looking for a player who can currently win the ball and carry it forward <laughs> in the league, I have to admit an incredible amount of... Um, Envy of what uh, Southampton have bought there, considering the summer they've had, and also the fact. And that it's strange that strange that um, Juventus let them go. Yeah, because he was a real versatile player that that played for uh, them a number of times last season in the Champions League and the latter stages of the Champions League. And I think he's he's a really versatile player that can do a lot of different things in a lot of different positions. I think midfield uh, is not the only place that we'll see him throughout his career. Um, so I'm I'm surprised that he made the move to Southampton in the first place. But if there's any place that you want to develop as a footballer, um, and not only that, but as a person, I think Southampton is the place. Right before you join Liverpool. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I'm not going to bring up Twitter, uh, or, or at least I will bring up Twitter in just a second. But we have had some questions through. Chris, do you have access to the TF3 Twitter? Stay with me one second, just logging in. Oh, wow. You log out. Taking the keys out and all that kind of stuff. No, I'm always logged in. No, Chris, Chris is actually very so paranoid I'm, about I can pretend to be Adam and Dave at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> That's convincing. Uh, yes, okay, I have it right in front of me. Do you have any, what, what questions have we had come in? Because we did ask for some cues for the A's. The A's being the arseholes who will answer them. Luke Dorr, friend of the show and myself, asks, who do you think will score in the Wembley Cup? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think Dan Cutting will Iggy. score. Am I right? Who? EE. No, right. I like that. I thought you said Iggy. Um, EE, definitely. Uh, I think uh, being inclined. Oh, wait. Can I? No, no, Robbie Fowler has been one. I think Robbie Fowler will score. Um, I actually think uh, some of the captains, uh, be that the F2 or Spencer, will get a goal. Um, and I think it'll be. Who's number nine for hashtag United? Uh, the, by the way, the, the Wembley Ryan Cup is a, Adams. I think it's yeah, Ryan Adams. I think he'll get uh, a goal or two. I'll be interested to see how the back line of uh, both sides deals with the attacking flair that both sides put out. I know a good thing, good friend of the show, good friend of ours, or Jimmy Conrad uh, is going to be playing for Hashtag United, so it's going to be quite the 
quite a star-studded event, and you can hear it exclusively uh, commentated on by Brian Davis and Lawrence McKenna. Lovely stuff. Um, see, we have some good questions, but I don't know if we have time to ask them. Piotr yeah, Garlas, what ahead. weaknesses do you see in your respective sides up to this point this season? Uh, lack of goals and leaky defence. <laughs> and what winter signings would you like to be made for them? Uh, Lamina. Uh, wouldn't be bad. Actually, it wouldn't be bad, but it's not going to happen. Uh, I'd love Liverpool to re-sign Emery Chan onto a long-term contract. And... Uh, who else would I love to see them sign? Um, just uh, some some uh, ba- uh, Naby Cater early in January. Uh, Nico, any any Man City signings you're desperate to make or eager to make? Um, I'd like to see some of the Girona guys brought back, Alex Garcia and Pablo Maffeo. Um, but other than that, I think Manchester City fans have to be happy with the squad. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Carlos Zaldivar a very good question that I think could have its own pod. Is playing beautiful football important? Bloody hell. Um, no, not always. Although it's also subjective what is beautiful. That's a very good answer. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that, that yeah, I think oftentimes people can talk about pragmatism and the different styles of football as, as, you know, beautiful football or simplistic football. When in reality, at the top level, both, um, maybe both extremes of football have uh, their own degree of, uh, com- you know, complexity that, that can be subjectively beautiful or not. Absolutely. And it's, uh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Uh, Pog Pass asks, short but not so simple, Marshall or Rashford? Uh, Rashford. But I really, really like the way that Martial carries the ball. Yeah, he's a very beautiful player to watch. Uh, but overall, yeah. I think most people would rather have a Rashford in their team right now, in the Premier League at least. Okay. Uh, Rashford is blistering, though, in terms of pace. But Martial, yeah, he's, he's fast. Yeah, Martial, I think, maybe even outstrips him. So Chinme Deval asks about Neymar Cavani, uh, but Packed Mouse... Asks, who's been the best bargain so far this season? Danilo would be my choice. That's him saying that, by the way, not me. Uh, good, good, good shout. Uh, what about you, Nico? Um, I'd be tempted to say James Rodriguez if I didn't think he unbalanced that Bayern midfield so much. But, you know, if they can work out those issues, then I'd probably say James Rodriguez, yeah. It's a good, it's a really good shout. Um, there are, there's a lot of names going around. Nemanja Matic surely has to be the token Dave mentioned here because he's been fantastic so far this season. Um, maybe even I'm trying to think who else there is. Um, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to seeing uh, Naby Keita now. So it's just that that really gets in the way. Uh, Chris, anyone for you? Surely Moreno, uh, Moreno was a big one. Yeah, I would say Moreno. He's only he's, if you if we bought him tomorrow, he would cost I think eight million, which is good. Good. Okay. That's in this market. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if this is a question or a statement. Bear with me. <laughs> Where's the podcast? Yeah, I mean that. Don't get me wrong. That is asked. Um, we're asked a lot about the Lukaku chat. Philip Oliver Melons, who might I add, has some very wonderful pit bulls. Um, who are very adorable, asks, why Lawrence is the type of guy that thinks his reflection is a Lawrence in a different dimension? I don't think that's a question. I, I, I could be totally wrong here. I yeah. had to read it a few times to understand. Uh, it, it's a long-term meme. Uh, 
I mean, it's the same dimension. I, I get the concept of a mirror. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Alex asks, is Eden Hazard a better dribbler than Neymar? Uh, subjective? Probably not based on a highlight reel, but maybe in terms of consistency. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I feel like this is a good one for Nico. Apologies if I get any names wrong here. As someone with a unique name, I'm used to it. Tapiwa Musa, I think is how you say it. Um, with Dembele out, what's the best option for Barca's front line, especially against Europe's best, considering Dilafiu is highly undependable? Good. Nico, any strong is, answers for this one? Is this me? Um... I feel like the, the def- like I said, the defensive approach that Valverde seems so fond of, um, sort of maybe the the four four two diamond that that uh, Real used in the final last season against Juventus, or 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 you know the loose iteration of that is really the the best because I think when you have Suarez narrow and and giving the, him the ability to roam, that's really a danger. And then who who doesn't want to see Messi a little bit deeper, maybe in in a more similar midfield role because the the type of ball that he can play over the top and then the the free role that he has uh, and that he's enjoying at the current moment is is something to behold. Um, so I think that that's where I would go with that. Any good final questions, Chris? Well, there's one that is a slight lead off of that. It's because it's Barcelona themed. I'm just trying to pull his name up. I believe his name is Dara White. I'm guessing he's Irish, given the way it's spelled. Could be Dara. Um, uh, yes, no, definitely good. And he asks... Um, Hang on, where has it gone? Oh, crumbs. This is awkward. Is is this the tweet? No, no, oh. he's not. He's, it's me that's the idiot. Um, oh, no, the poor lad, he's probably thinking, yes, finally, I've got a question answered and this idiot can't find it. Ah, there we go. It seems like Barcelona is turning into a club who does not focus on their academy as much anymore, but focus on outside sources. I think that's been a prominent narrative for some time. Um, you can still see academy but, but products. Is it, is it one that's Spanish true? players? Um, I, I mean, it, it certainly is, is fair to say that there is a lot of criticism to be had of the hierarchy within the club. Um, the fact they are still getting reasonable results during a time where people are massively questioning their acumen and um, their uh, actual football expertise is, is certainly interesting. They seem to be straying from the rules set down by the men in the past, doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong um and it it does have the tendency to look from the outside like there are shortcuts being taken um but at the same time there are other sides which argue differently and um they do still still seem to be promoting young spanish if not catalan exclusively talent nico yeah, no, I would agree with a lot of what you said, but at the same time, I, I think um, people talking about the 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 lack of maybe concentration of of Barcelona youth products is something that was an unrealistic expectation in the first place, as I've talked about before, um, because of how many they had at, at one particular point in time. Um, when in reality, the the majority of clubs never have near that amount of success with their um, with their youth system. And I understand Barcelona have ele- elevated expectations of of their youth products and and their youth academy. But um, realistically, 
unless they have better coaches than everyone else, which I think at this point in time, they don't necessarily, that's not necessarily the case. Um, then you can expect the same out of the, their production. So I wouldn't necessarily even put that down to the hierarchy. I would just put that down to the coaching at the, at the youth Academy. Excellent. Any closing questions, Kristen? No, I think that's all. But, um, what I would say to anyone who maybe didn't get this out, you can always DM us because our DMS are open. Um, and there, anyone yeah. else will probably miss that utterly but Kristen does make sure to pass them on very often yes yeah. oh actually I tell you what our good friend Kenny J. Rubello, who by the way I keep meaning to say on the podcast is an aspiring semi-pro footballer nope. um, doing good things with uh, Dallas City FC I keep watching his Instagram stories and things. it's really fun live. great yeah um, he asked should captaincy be decided as a matter of meritocracy position on the pitch or how long a player has been at the club uh, there are arguments for each. You've got to say that they suit different management styles. Um, I think it depends on how it's explained. From my perspective, it depends on how it's explained to the players, but also the fans um, and what your club looks for in a captain. And, um, uh, you know, so for instance, there's a lot of frustration around Jordan Henderson maybe being Liverpool captain, but at the same time, people see the merits of it. Um, it it's a very subjective thing. I would say it should be maybe number of games played and then speak to everyone else about being a leader as well. But that, that's probably just the, the solution that I go for, Nico. I would say it's it's less about, you know, you being the best player on the pitch and the best player on the team and more about maybe the... the uh, Demeanour. Yeah, the demeanor and, and, and type of player that you are in terms of the intensity. You know, we've all played sports to different differing uh, intensities and I think there's there's a specific type of character that sticks out for a captaincy and that doesn't always necessarily coincide with the best talent so nice uh, Chris your, your captain preference no not really I think leaders present themselves and even then you know some some teams that I've seen even some teams I've played on there's not there's been a captain but a lot of leaders at the same time so yeah it varies I think great question and thank you very much for sending that one in uh, we'd love to know your thoughts on what qualifies a captain uh, and what captain you want for your own side uh, what you look for in those men or women who end up leading your team or something in between of course um, and we, we will go through them next time it's been good to have you uh, guys tonight thank you very much Kristen for uh, bringing the questions along and also bringing your, your views a pleasure as always. At K Henage, K H E N E A G E. Well worth a look on Twitter, uh, and he writes a lot for the for Umaxit, or as they're known now, Chris, after their great rebrand, Tifo. Yes, um, they're changing their name. That's, yes. that's all I've got for you. They're trying to get away from that. Um, the, yeah, the, I was going to do something about witness relocation there, but um, Nico Lawrence. Uh, where can people find your work because I think a lot of people are going to want to read the Klopp article after the discussion uh, yeah they can find me at Nico underscore O Morales and find the majority of my work there and then my articles I usually keep them in a pin tweet or uh, retweet them or post them out um, so yeah find me there you really need a Tumblr or something you can sort of keep them on so I can just go through that I used to I used to have a Tumblr and, and that still exists but I just don't have it as my uh, website anymore I don't think What's your website now? Uh, I don't have one. We can change that. Uh, it's been great to have you guys. Uh, if you've got suggestions as to what Nico should make his URL for the 
website. Uh, maybe that's that man. Lawrence, where, where can people find you? Uh, around. I'll be all over at, at the front three and at Lozcast, L-O-Z-C-A-S-T. You can also find Adam Boltwood at Adam Boltwood and Statman Dave at Statman Dave. All of those are in the links in the description for the podcast or at the front three on Twitter. And you can see all our profiles over there. It's been good to have you guys. And we'll see you again real soon right here on the front three. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, good. Wow.